This episode of Historium is sponsored by Blueberry. Blueberry is the gold standard in podcast hosting, and that's why we use it to host all of our podcasts here on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. If you would like to get started making your own podcast and are looking for a way to host it, or you're using another podcast hosting platform and simply want to switch, you can get one month free podcast hosting through Blueberry if you go to orbitaljigsaw.com history. The town of Mayberry, the setting of the immensely popular Andy Griffith Show, is actually based on Andy Griffith's childhood home of Mount Airy, North Carolina. If you make the trek to the rural town in the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains, you'll find monuments and memorabilia from the show all over. You can't miss them. Andy Griffith Show fans from all over will make their pilgrimages to see the real-world setting of the adventures of Sheriff Andy Taylor and his inept yet well-meaning detective Barney Fife. A local festival, Mayberry Days, brings thousands into the usually sleepy town every year. Smack dab in the middle of what's called Mayberry USA is a museum devoted to the show. Upon walking through its doors, you'll be bombarded with the small town nostalgia that permeated through the show. Glass cases hold special objects like Otis's straw hat, Sheriff Taylor's uniform, Barney Fife's salt and pepper suit, placards with details about Andy's upbringing in Mount Airy and their relation to the show line the walls. Andy Griffith's show shirts and other merchandise are on sale around the corner. The museum is well curated and surprisingly expansive, giving hidden details and historical context for a show that portrays such a familiar Americana from some vague nostalgic past. But hidden deeper in the museum is something quite different. In a smaller chamber is an exhibit devoted to Chang and Ang, the two once famous connected Siamese twins who eventually settled down in Mount Airy in the mid-19th century. These famous twins, connected from the sternum by a large band of flesh, witnessed some of the most profound moments in 19th century America. Chang and Ang would rattle the world, expose bitter ironies in America's social structure, and challenge the very concept of individualism, the cornerstone of Western democracy. I'm Jake Barton. Welcome to Historium. This is episode 62, Side by Side. Chang and Ang smiled at each other as they swam through the muddy water of the Meiklong River in southern Siam, now known as Thailand. It had taken years to master tasks like swimming, but now they could traverse the water in perfect unison. Alternating strokes, kicking in tandem, the band of flesh that had connected them since birth always taut, but never enough to be painful. A monsoon had swept through the area the day before, and moisture still hung heavy in the air. To the west, the dull red disc started to sink beyond the jungle tree line. The twins knew they would soon have to return to their mother on their home on the river. The pair began swimming towards their boat on the shore when they saw something downstream. The metal beast was coming straight towards them, paddles roiling the muddy waters, smoke pluming up from its smokestack. It was a large western steamship. Chang and Ang had only seen a few of them before, and most from quite a distance. Once again in perfect tandem, the pair of boys climbed up onto their small boat and together peered up at the vessel. As it passed, Chang and Ang saw a strangely dressed man leaning over the railing. The twins smiled as the bewildered man on his boat passed by. The man's name was Robert Hunter, and this would be far from the last time the twins saw him. 
Robert Hunter was a Scottish merchant and had been in Siam since 1824. He had been sent by the East India Company to open up the country for Western trade. He struggled at first, but after a gift of 1,000 state-of-the-art rifles to the king, Hunter was treated like a VIP guest. He was granted an immaculate three-story house right on the river in Bangkok. After learning the language, Robert Hunter became the intermediary between any Western traders and the king's court. The Scotsman lived in relative bliss in his home in the capital, but his mind would often return to the strange double boys he had encountered on the river. In his journal, Hunter would mention the strange hydra-like creature he had once seen swimming in the water. So one day, he set out to find them. It didn't take long. He had estimated the position where he had spotted them on the river and began asking the locals about a pair of connected boys. The twins were well known, and Hunter was pointed in the direction of their residence. Upon arrival, he noticed the twins immediately. They were leading a congregation of ducks along the river. A band of flesh connected them both at the center of their chests. He sat down to talk with their mother. She told him that the pair had been born in that small fishing village along the Mekelong River in 1811, in central Siam. They had come out of the womb in a neatly packed bundle, the heads in between the other's legs. As they were unpacked, the family was shocked to discover a band of flesh connecting the twins by the sternum. As the children grew up, they remained healthy, happily playing while learning to do everything in perfect unison. The twins' father, Tai Ai, was a fisherman from China and had died a few years prior from cholera. Their mother, Nok, was half Chinese, half Siamese. In reality, the Siamese twins were more Chinese twins, and indeed that's what their neighbors referred to them as. Their names were Chang and Ang. Some later accounts would claim that their names simply meant left and right, but this is incorrect. In reality, their names probably arose from two types of fruit that grew near their home. One was more sweet, matching Chang's disposition, while the other was more complex and bitter, fitting Ang. As their mother told Hunter about their upbringing, he marveled at the boys playing with the ducks just outside. He knew that exhibiting this wonder of nature in the West could prove quite lucrative. He made the mother an offer to take the twins on tour. She explained that, as Robert Hunter surely knew as well, the boys were subjects of the king. They could only leave the country with the royal say-so. Hunter would spend the next few years trying to persuade the elusive Siamese king to allow him to take the twins on tour, but found no luck. He would visit Chang and Ang frequently, seeing them keep healthy as they grew up. Eventually, Hunter enlisted the help of a fellow business partner, Bible-thumping mariner Abel Coffin. Captain Coffin was a loud and brash American, but he earned the king's good graces after another donation of rifles. He was just as amazed at the boys as Hunter was, and was determined to convince the king to let the Siamese twins out of the country. In a rare meeting in the royal palace, Abel Coffin sidestepped conversations about percentages of profit and logistics, and instead appealed to the king's vanity, saying that the rare and wondrous nature of the Siamese twins would show the glory of Siam to the entire world. This gambit worked, and the king finally gave his permission to take the twins on tour. On March 20th, 1829, like a sign from the gods, a lunar eclipse glared ominously in the sky. Siamese folklore held that a lunar eclipse is caused by an angry sky dog trying to devour the moon. Across the region, people banged pots and pans and yelled up at the sky to scare the celestial canine away. In the midst of this cacophony, Abel Coffin and Robert Hunter went to fetch Chang and Ang. 
the men paid the mother $500 to let them take the twins on tour for five years. Chang Neng, now 17 years old, had no say in the matter. They didn't quite realize the severity of being, in essence, sold into indentured servitude. But on April Fool's Day of 1829, the Siamese twins, carrying small suitcases and a cage containing their pet python, boarded a 387-ton steamship and set sail for the New World. From the aft of the vessel, Chang and Eng watched their native country sink over the horizon. They would never see Siam again. The twins were relegated to steerage and were essentially smuggled into the States. Coffin would frequently check on the pair, half expecting them to have been stolen by a rival entrepreneur. Eventually, they arrived in the port of Boston. Andrew Jackson had been president for less than a year, but you could already tell America had reached a turning point. No longer the fledgling national experiment, the United States began to come into its own. Manifest destiny propelled settlers west as urban centers industrialized at a rapid rate. Many urbanites, now subservient to clockwork labor schedules, needed things to do on their time off. Mass entertainment finally began to flourish in the young nation. Horse racing, cockfights, card games, theater, festivals, concerts, and competitions became increasingly popular in the new economy. Suddenly, people could make an honest-to-God living merely by entertaining others. Freak shows that displayed freaks or monsters or curiosities or wonders or marvels or oddities or rarities or nature's mistakes or freaks of nature had enraptured 18th century Europe, but they had yet to truly catch on in America. Of course, there were some street merchants showing off albino African slaves or people born without limbs, but for the new joint business partners Abel Coffin and Robert Hunter, there was no blueprint. Under the cover of night, they whisked away the wide-eyed twins to a room in a nearby tavern. Chang and Aang had each learned a bit of English and expressed their amazement at the city in the few words they knew. Coffin and Hunter quickly arranged a showroom exhibit and ran to the nearest printing press to print handbills and posters advertising this strange new double person. They also purchased vaguely oriental costumes and groomed Chang and Aang for their first appearance on the world stage. The pair learned to play chess and checkers, and parroted back certain phrases sure to earn a laugh or two. In the last week of August 1829, the twins did their first show. Despite the stiff 50-cent entrance fee, about $15 in today's money, the line snaked around the block. Standing on a stage covered in fake ivy and ferns, in oriental costumes that looked nothing like anything they had ever worn before, adorned in their long East Asian Q hairstyles, Chang and Eng greeted the crowd. They looked around the smoky showroom at the men and women, mostly with their jaws on the floor, speaking a strange language and eating strange foods. But they did their best to smile and make the audience smile too. Viewers were both fascinated and shocked by the sight. Two brothers of an exotic race who spoke with a strange Asian accent, eternally bound to one another, who could crack jokes with the best of them? I mean, come on, that's your money's worth right there. As Mr. Coffin collected the coins at the entrance, he would look back in amazement. The twins were naturals. They exuded charisma and knew expert comedic timing. They knew when to call out hecklers and when to ignore them. Chang and Aang were natural salesmen, and they knew what they were selling better than anyone. From the very first night, the amazing connected Siamese twins were a hit. One newspaper reporter wrote, quote, 
An image of the young Chang and Aang presents them clad in pantaloons and tunics with ornate designs. Their complexions are swarthy, even dark, and their slanted eyes and bulbous foreheads make them appear inextricably foreign. They stand against a backdrop that suggests a comfortable coexistence with what is presumed to be their natural habitat. Lush, tropical vegetation graces the foreground. Behind them are palm trees and huts. Farther in the distance is domed architecture, evocative of North Africa or West Asia, collapsing multiple orients into one another." Unquote. Another observer wrote, quote, "...the famous Siamese boys presented a sight I admit at first was quite revolting." Unquote. Mary Shelley's novel Frankenstein was a hit just a few years before, and the word monster or monstrous shows up frequently in descriptions of the twins. Chang and Aang were told early and often to not get too comfortable in one place, as they were to be on the road a lot. Rarely do people pay to see a curiosity twice. You have to get while the getting is good. Just the nature of the business. And sure enough, they were on the road within the month. One of their first stops was Harvard Medical School. While there, Chang and Aang were inspected by school dean and founder of the American Medical Association, John Collins Warren. After a thorough medical examination that focused primarily on the band of flesh that connected the two, Dr. Warren deemed a separation incredibly risky to both parties. When Chang and Aang were no longer in the room, Dr. Warren leaned in and warned the traitors turned showmen that the twins may not live long. They heard the message loud and clear, get while the getting is good. So with the medical examination providing a stamp of legitimacy on their curiosity, Coffin and Hunter hit the road once again. By the time the troop arrived in Providence, Rhode Island, Chang and Aang were doing somersaults in tandem and challenged members of the audience to games of chess or cards, games which they frequently won. One night, they carried a large man around the stage on their shoulders to the delight of the crowd. Soon, questions arose about their individuality. A reporter from the Pennsylvania Gazette posed questions in their article entitled Double, Double, Toil and Trouble, Quote, what would happen if one brother converted to Christianity while the other remained a disciple of the great Buddha? Would both souls be saved even though one twin was a heathen? Unquote. Others argued about if one twin committed a crime, would the other be sent to prison with him? Of course, there were contrarians amidst the hordes of spectators. One Providence reporter wrote, quote, The Siamese boys held no more significance for society than did a double-yoked egg. Unquote. Double yoked egg or not, Coffin and Hunter were making a sizable profit from each show. By September of 1829, Coffin and the twins boarded a steamer heading towards their biggest venue yet, New York City. Their first show was at the Grand Masonic Hall on Broadway. By this point, the twins were fluent in English and each sharpest hacks, improvising and engaging in banter with the audience. They once spotted a one-eyed man in the crowd and demanded that Mr. Coffin return half his admission fee to raucous applause. Another time a man with no legs was in the crowd, and the twins approached his wheelchair and gave him a cigar while lamenting the fact that he had no legs while they had four. Chang and Aang were a hit everywhere they went. Within just months, the term Siamese twins had officially entered the American lexicon when it was included in the second edition of Webster's Dictionary in 1829. Worried by the doctor's concerns of an early demise, Coffin and Hunter decided to take the twins to Europe. 
Before the departure, Abel took out a $10,000 life insurance policy on the twins and bought an ample supply of embalming materials should his prized curiosities die during the voyage. Alive or dead, the tour would continue. At this point, Abel Coffin bought out Robert Hunter's share in the business venture. As Hunter began his return voyage to Siam, he told the twins that he would send back word about their mother. Coffin, his wife, and their new tour manager, the tall and slender New Englander James Hale, were all booked in first class, while Chang and Ang were confined to steerage. This glaringly unfair treatment planted a seed of resentment in the twins. Deep down, they knew that the troop was nothing without them, and yet here they were, rocking back and forth in the dimly lit, cramped lower levels of the ship. After a rough voyage across the Atlantic, they finally arrived in England. In London, the smog clouded the air as a result of the nation's forays into mass industrialization. Despite the immense smog cover and overcast weather, each London show was a raucous success. But soon, the weather and smog were not kind to the twins. They fell ill often, as they grew more and more exhausted after shows nearly every night. Their plight was not dissimilar to the punch-clock workforce of the London factories that produced the smog that darkened the skies above them. But every missed exhibition was dollars down the drain, so Abel Coffin often pressured the twins to perform even while sick. And perform they did. Chang would hold up a blackened snowball or a piece of coal and declare, Behold, the London sun. By this point, the twins showed more and more acrobatics and dexterity. They could now do a backflip in tandem, as well as play badminton between each other, the shuttlecock bouncing between the pairs with surprising speed. Another stop on the British tour involved a visit to a doctor of phrenology, the study of skull shape that supposedly indicated mental faculties, which was all the rage. A quick assessment of their head bumps was all the doctor needed to divine the twins' personalities and fates. Their benevolence is of the highest order, he declared. Of course, the doctor also deemed them to be high in submissiveness and low in creativity, which corresponded to how most phrenologists of the day looked upon Asian peoples. As prominent phrenologist George Finlayson put it, quote, They would be more admirably calculated to execute and undergo more toil and labor, utilizing mechanical skill over brightness of imagination, unquote. The young Chang and Ang did not understand what the pseudoscientists around them were discreetly alluding to, but they would find out soon enough when they witnessed more and more of the everyday racism of the 19th century. At their venues in the British Isles, the Siamese twins would often find themselves amongst what were called racial freaks, African slaves with elaborate nose piercings, a Chinese woman with bound feet. The crowds gawked at their strange physique and their race in equal measure. Their abnormalities were not the only things that made them other in the eyes of the curious onlookers. Towards the end of their English tour, a London socialite named Sophia became enraptured by Chang and Ang, and apparently fell in love with them both. It was the first taste of romance the twins had encountered, but the love affair was doomed from the start. While the gypsy dancer Esmeralda did not fall for Quasimodo because he was, as Victor Hugo put it, an almost. The twins had the opposite problem. They were an inseparable pair. Any relationship would be not just morally prohibitive, but also very much illegal due to polygamy laws. She was forced to give up her pursuit, and according to a London columnist, settled down with a, quote, commercial gent of promising prospects, but unexceptional whiskers, unquote. So they toured on, 
They were seen by the Queen of England, various English nobles, and foreign dignitaries. They were even seen by the ex-king of France, Charles X, the last of the Bourbon line. Instead of the half-crown entrance fee, he paid with an ornate gold coin. The twins would show off the coin in later shows, saying that Charles gave them a coin because he no longer had a crown to give. The joke killed. Their event manager, James Hale, kept exceptionally detailed records of their travels and expenses. In under a year, they traveled around 2,500 miles across the kingdom, while being seen by well over a quarter of a million people. Abel Coffin then decided to tour mainland Europe, starting in France. France had a robust tradition of freak shows and carnivals featuring anything deemed as grotesque. However, French officials were implementing new rules after their many decades of turbulent revolutions. They refused to grant access for the conjoined twins to cross the channel, citing a fear of maternal impressions, a long-standing idea that if a woman gazed upon anything monstrous, it would result in deformations of her unborn baby. So, the group decided to return to America. They boarded the steamship Cambria. This time, Chang and Eng did not ride in steerage, probably because Abel Coffin and his wife realized that they had to keep them comfortable in order to milk the most money out of them. In the middle of their journey, the mid-Atlantic suddenly went dark. Everyone piled out onto the decks when they saw the almost total solar eclipse. People gasped and marveled at the astronomical anomaly above them. Chang and Ang too solemnly looked up at the darkening of the sun. Memories flooded through their minds of the lunar eclipse in Siam, pots and pans banging almost a lifetime ago. On February 12, 1831, the Coffins, James Hale, and the famous Siamese twins arrived back at New York City. They entered a more restless America. The abolitionist movement was gaining steam. Nat Turner planned his bloody slave uprising in Virginia. Cholera outbreaks tore through the states. But the group set about touring the tumultuous country. They had left the state's 18-year-old greenhorns and returned as seasoned showmen. They were now 5'2", full-bodied, and capable in all aspects of the English language. Ex-mayor of New York City and extensive diarist Philip Hone went to see the now-famous Siamese twins on their opening day of their new show on Broadway. In his journal, he wrote, quote, March 15th, 1829. Went this morning to see the Siamese boys who returned last week from England. I did not see them when they were formally exhibited in the city. This astonishing freak of nature is exceedingly interesting, and the sight of it is not as disagreeable as I had expected to find it. They are now nearly 20 years old, kind, good-tempered, and playful. Their limbs are well-proportioned and strong, but their faces are devoid of intelligence and have the stupid expression which is characteristic of all the natives of the East. They are united with a strong ligament of flesh or gristle, without bone, about three inches in breadth and five inches in length. Their movements are, of course, simultaneous. They walk, sit down, play, eat, drink, and perform all the functions of nature in unison. Their dispositions and their very thoughts are alike. When one is sick, the other partakes of his brother's illness, and the stroke of death will, no doubt, lay them both in the same grave. And yet, their bodies, heads, and limbs are all perfectly distinct. They speak English tolerably well and appear quite fond of talking." Unquote. While Hone's overt racism takes center stage, he was echoed by thousands of others in their fascination with the pair from Southeast Asia. 
After concluding in New York, they continued their tour down the East Coast until they were stopped in their tracks by the worst winter in decades. While hunkering down, the twins received a letter from their mother, sent by Robert Hunter. The letter proved to be a ray of sunshine in the midst of the dreary weather, which lifted Chang and Ang's spirits. For a brief moment, their thoughts were of rain hissing on palm leaves, muddy waves lazily lapping along the banks of the Meiklong River, a hug from their mother, her head between theirs. As the winter subsided, giving way to spring, Abel Coffin and his wife returned home, while the troop of James Hale, the twins, and their driver made their way across Massachusetts. For a time, they toured with an orangutan. Then, after the weather got bad, they toured with the corpse of an orangutan. The coffins in letters urged Hale to exhibit the twins every day, but Hale could see the fatigue growing. By April, the twins had fallen ill and were bedridden for four days. Despite urgings from the coffins to continue their tour, Hale put their journey on pause and allowed Chang and Ang to recover and recuperate in rural Massachusetts. They stopped in the little town of Linfield. Chang and Ang purchased a fishing pole and a hunting rifle and went about trekking through the wilderness. After interacting with thousands of onlookers over the past year, the twins were truly enjoying their seclusion. They hunted pheasant and fished in secluded alcoves, catching pumpkin seed, perch, and bluegill. They laughed at a family of beavers and marveled at the flora and fauna of North America, much of which they were seeing for the very first time. And for the first time since landing in Boston, Chang and Ang were free. However, rumors had spread that the now famous Siamese twins were staying nearby. Some of the townsfolk decided to make finding them a sort of challenge. As the twins eagerly explored the woods around the town together, they began seeing more and more people. Maybe Linfield was simply more crowded than they initially thought. But soon the twins found themselves being followed by a crowd of gawking onlookers everywhere they went. Hunting and fishing became all but impossible, with dozens always nearby. The crowd. The crowd they could never escape. All that smiling and joking nonstop as thousands of people lined up to call them names they couldn't understand and then did understand. This eternal leering audience, which haunted their every move, grew larger and closer. They began shouting, throwing trash and rocks. Chang and Ang went up and threatened the crowd with the butt of their gun. Ang pushed the barrel down and urged his brother to keep his cool. But then a rock flung from the crowd nailed Ang in the temple. Chang's finger was on the trigger. As blood dripped down the side of his brother's face, Chang couldn't take it any longer. He fired. Screams. Within a minute, the crowd fled. They were alone. No one was hurt besides Aang, his face bloody from the thrown rock. They retreated back to James Hale at the tavern. The next day, the pair was arrested for disturbing the peace. Chang defended himself by saying that he only shot a blank into the crowd to scare them away. They were fined $200, after which they left town. Newspapers across New England ran stories about the scuffle, many labeling the incident as the Battle of Linfield. Leaving the Linfield battle behind them, the troop hit the road once again, resuming the grueling tour schedule forced by the coffins via letters. In October of 1829, James Hale could tolerate the coffins' micromanagement no longer. He quit his job as tour manager, and the coffins replaced him with fast-talking Irishman Charles Harris. The twins took a liking to Harris immediately. He was friendly, and like the Siamese twins, he often experienced racism due to his Irish ancestry. The three were bonded by mistreatment each time they were turned away from taverns or inns for reasons involving racism towards the Irish or Asians. 
mostly both. But Harris proved to be an amazing tour manager and showman. He would often go ahead of the twins to drum up interest by placing posters and giving out handbills before their arrival. Crowds clamored into theaters and tents and showrooms just to get a glimpse at this wonder of the age. However, they soon ran into trouble with various jurisdictions that were unsure of how to tax their performance. When they reached the South, they were regularly taxed as slaves. And in a way, they were. All of the paperwork indicated that Chang and Ang were purchased from their mother in Siam. This was a wake-up call that made the twins truly realize the precarious situation they were in. Chang and Ang sent a letter to Mrs. Coffin, requesting a meeting with Mr. Coffin. She repeatedly brushed them off, telling them to wait for Captain Coffin to return from his voyage in Asia. But months passed, and there was no word from the old captain. The twins grew impatient as letters flew between the pair and Mrs. Coffin. In one of the final letters penned by Charles Harris in the twins' own words, they said this, quote, As to Mrs. Coffin doing all she could for their comfort and loving them and liking them, they say they have no doubt that the number of hard-shining dollars which they have enabled her to spend have made her like them. But let Mrs. Coffin look into her own heart, and she will discover that the great loving and liking was not for their own sakes, but for the sake of said dollars." Unquote. All the times they were booked as second-class citizens, all the crowded rooms they were forced into, all the times they performed while sick, brought them to a breaking point. In Buffalo, New York, on May 11, 1832, the twins celebrated their 21st birthday by announcing that their relationship with the Coffins would be hereby terminated. Charles Harris wrote their Declaration of Independence and gladly signed a contract, not as Chang and Eng's boss, but as their employee. The twins signed both the letter and the contract as Chang Eng, Siamese twins. They now stood side by side as independent individuals ready to take their destiny into their own hands. To celebrate their newfound freedom, the twins went boating at Niagara Falls. Relieved to finally be their own masters, Chang and Ang took the paddles from their boatmaster and paddled perilously close to the edge of the roaring waterfall. They had come a long way from the slow-flowing Meiklong River. A rainbow hung in the cloud of mist near the edge of the falls. The liberty was intoxicating. The boatman's persistent reminders turned to screams as the craft floated ever closer to the edge. After some panicked paddling and apologies, Chang and Ang got back to solid ground. They paid the boatman $4 for the rental and a 25-cent tip for the scare. They then cut off their long queues, no longer having to appear as an oriental stereotype. They then bought 500 cigars for $9, a pocketbook for $1, two new suits for $13.50, a trunk for $10, bottles of Kentucky bourbon for $5, a carriage for $103, and for $72.50, they purchased a horse with a decidedly American name, Bob. Chang, Ang, Charles Harris, and Bob then made off for their first stop as independent showmen. Over the next few months, they found their footing selling tickets to various showrooms throughout upstate New York. They were mostly breaking even, but occasionally netted a decent profit. However, they soon ran into a problem that would plague them for years, the Second Great Awakening. Various Protestant revival movements were burning through the American interior. In most cases, these tent revivals simply siphoned off potential viewers. But in some areas, religious movements had outright banned all festivals, theater-going, and circuses altogether. Whatever nebulous category the Siamese twins found themselves in, 
it was oftentimes outlawed by the towns they passed through. Throughout rural New England, the troop passed all sorts of evidence of the religious fervor. Circus tents repurposed for tent revivals, theaters now only available to preachers, taverns with their windows broken, busted whiskey barrels in the streets. The Siamese twins were both freakish and pagan, and struggled to find venues to perform in. As they headed south, they continued to receive pestering mail from the coffins, ordering them to return home at once. The twins ignored them, but Charles Harris responded, encouraging the coffins to let it go. They would not. Eventually, Captain Coffin caught up with the troop in Bath, New York. Chang and Aang were enjoying a cigar and some beer at a bar when Coffin barged in. They argued for hours, Coffin citing the contract, the twins citing injustices, Harris doing his best to mediate. Their debate concluded when Coffin, the Bible-thumping Puritan that he was, delivered an impromptu sermon chastising the twins for indulging in smoking, drinking, and gambling. Chang responded with, We have just as much right to these things as you do. Coffin stormed off. He later claimed that when the twins refused to repent, he beat them, saying he gave them, quote, the damnedest thrashing they had ever had in their lives, unquote. However, their old manager James Hale had occasionally seen the boys in fistfights with troublemakers. The twins were known to have quite the tempers, and by nature of their connective band, one would always have to give in to the other's rage. They had to. So James Hale later cast doubt on Captain Coffin's story, saying, quote, That cannot have been so, because Coffin is yet alive. Unquote. Whatever the case, this was the last time Chang and Aang ever saw the man who would radically change their destiny turning the two rural sons of a fisherman into now world-famous showmen. Their next stop was Pittsburgh, and beyond it, the Ohio River Valley. Within the past few decades, frontier towns had developed into thriving cities, and the Siamese twins, with the well-practiced flair of Charles Harris, were quick to garner their curiosity. Aside from marketing themselves and the band that kept them together as a strange sight, they also sold items on the side. Now thoroughly trained showmen and salesmen, they sold cigars, lithographic portraits, and biographical sketches. The road wore their show down to an art form, with jokes and prepared lines guaranteed to get a laugh peppered throughout their performances. In order to drum up even more publicity, they would often do joint exhibitions with other entertainers, freaks, or curiosities. In Cleveland, the pair teamed up with legendary Indian chief Blackhawk a captured Native American chief who was paraded around the United States as a strange pseudo-war trophy from one of Andrew Jackson's victories. The Siamese twins and Chief Blackhawk in his full tribal regalia put on an incredible show in Cleveland in front of cheering crowds. Later, when asked about his time spent with the famous Siamese twins, the elder chief recalled their shows and after-parties with a great fondness. He said, quote, The great spirit has made them as they are, and would protect them and be their guide. Surely the Great Spirit will one day call them across the great waters together." Unquote. The Siamese twins' success continued throughout the Ohio River Valley, Cincinnati, Indianapolis, Louisville, Lexington, Knoxville. Their tour gained even more steam the more south they went, but as they took their plunge into the deep south, they experienced some changes. Racist remarks became more commonplace, they were sometimes turned away when seeking lodging, but their numbers were up. They continually dealt with the paradox of both more racism, but more profit. Surely the racism helped bring out more gawkers, but in general, the Southerners were smitten by the men from Siam. 
They were soon making enough money that perhaps they could one day retire. One hot night in mid-October, the twins were hosting an exhibit in a small parlor in the only hostel in a small town called Athens, Alabama. The place was overcrowded, filled with gawking teenagers, women with babies on their hips, and suntanned field hands, all clamoring to get a glance at God's miracle or God's mistake, depending on one's disposition. One country doctor tried to distinguish himself from the crowd by asking to examine the connecting band up close. Chang and Eng politely declined, as they had been poked, prodded, and examined by enough doctors to last well over two lifetimes. The doctor insisted, and the twins declined once more. At this point, the doctor became furious and decried the Siamese twins as frauds. The twins returned verbal fire, and all hell broke loose. The end result was something between a bar fight and a small riot. The twins were lucky to escape without serious injury. The next day, Charles Harris quietly paid the local magistrate a $350 fine for disturbing the peace, and the troop quietly left town. Articles describing the Athens Battle Royale were printed far and wide. But if there's one thing Southerners love, it's a good fight. The Siamese twins continued to be a smash hit wherever they toured in the South. In June of 1839, the troop of Chang Eng and Charles Harris crossed over the Blue Ridge Mountains into North Carolina. Their rickety buggy was pulled into the sleepy town of Wilkesboro. Lush green hills with friendly folk nestled in various hollows. After nearly a decade of touring almost non-stop, the twins were worn out, so they decided to take a break in this area of North Carolina. While the trees were not exactly the lush palms of Siam, and the mountain streams were not the muddy Meklong, the twins felt a sort of nostalgia for a place that was a bit similar to their home. They bought a room at the local inn, by now barely noticing the wide eyes or cursory glances their way. They then bought several dollars worth of fishing bait, hooks, lead bullets, copper caps, and two hunting hats. Chang and Aang spent the next few weeks stomping around the mountains, hunting and fishing like a double Daniel Boone. They were finally able to find some seclusion in that wilderness, and relished in it. By this point, they had amassed over $10,000 in savings, and were sending more to a New York savings account, which had been accruing interest. So, almost on a whim, they decided to settle down. They bought a plot of land near the minuscule town of Trap Hill, in a valley of the Blue Ridge Mountains. They kept Charles Harris on their payroll for another month, and in that time, the smooth-talking Irishman fell in love with a farmer's daughter near Trap Hill. Within the month, Charles Harris offered his hand in marriage, and she said yes. The Irishman decided to settle down close to his two friends from Siam. Chang, Ang, and Harris knew two fundamental truths about the United States. They were all considered others, but also money talks. When they all settled down, they were some of the wealthiest men in the county. But there was one more step the twins had to take in order for them to enjoy all of the rights and privileges of their new home, become U.S. citizens. In mid-October 1839, Chang and Ang filed a petition to the Superior Court of North Carolina. Soon after, they renounced their allegiance to the King of Siam before a local judge and were officially U.S. citizens. However, this standard-issue bureaucratic naturalization process was actually a federally illegal act. The 1790 Naturalization Act limited the privilege of naturalized citizenship to only, quote, free white persons, unquote. The fact that the connected twins from Southeast Asia were in this strange racial middle ground 
mattered little in this instance. Granting citizenship largely fell into local or state jurisdictions, so as wealthy, world-class celebrities, the Siamese twins stood firmly in the town's good graces, which mattered more than federal law. Over the mild winter, the twins went about hiring people to construct their house, a spacious two-story wooden structure with an open veranda on three sides. Their new home was situated near a bubbly mineral spring, the perfect view of the rock dome called Stone Mountain. They themselves partook in the construction, which endeared themselves to the locals even more. By 1840, they went about acquiring linens, utensils, plates, locks, candle stands. They hired Charles Harris to head to the capital to buy for them some of the more finer things in life. Rugs, fine soap, brandy, bourbon, wine, ivory knives, spices, sauces, tea. Their old tour manager brought back a $500 haul. Chang and Ang took to commerce as their occupation. They opened a small shop in town and sold general goods. From years of experience with hucksters and profiteers, the pair had become incredibly competent salesmen. Through their fledgling general store, they made a fine profit, and perhaps more importantly, acquainted themselves with every neighbor within a dozen miles. Seeing this strange, connected double person was quite an experience for the locals, but everyone became endeared to them after a while. They were charming. For years, they had to be, in order to stay afloat. Occasionally, a journalist from some coastal city would wander into Trap Hill, seeking the famous connected twins. They would be pointed to their general store or their home. The twins would answer questions. A reporter from the Raleigh Register wrote, quote, It is a phenomenon not perhaps to be witnessed again in the country, to see Asiatics transformed into good American citizens, not only in language, but in feeling. They have lost every vestige of their native tongue. In fact, they speak English fluently and almost without foreign accent. They are chatty and communicative, and hence their perfection in our language. They are altogether American in feeling." Unquote. In 1840, the twins had been paying other wealthy landowners in the area for labor. These plantation owners were obviously not performing the manual labor themselves. No, the Siamese twins began paying their neighbors to borrow their slaves. We don't know how the slaves felt working for someone that looked nothing like the masters they were used to and had previously been exhibited in freak shows, but one thing was clear. Chang and Ang viewed themselves as part of the oppressor class, sitting happily atop the southern hierarchy. In a letter to their discoverer, Robert Hunter, with whom they kept frequent correspondence, they wrote, quote, We live way off in the backwood, at the foot of the mountains called the Blue Ridge, in a very healthy country within 25 miles of the state of Virginia and 50 miles of the state of Tennessee. We have wood and water in abundance, and our neighbors are all on inequality, and none are very rich. People live comfortably, and each man tills his own soil. We enjoy ourselves pretty well, but have not yet to get married. But we are making towards love pretty fast, and if we get a couple of nice wives, we will be sure to let you know about it." Unquote. The letter is revealing for two reasons. First, it shows their disregard of their servant slaves as people, and also shows their yearning for love. While Robert Hunter may have viewed it in jest, the twins were deadly serious. For months now, Chang had been seriously courting a woman named Adelaide Yates, who lived in town, while Aang fancied her younger sister, Sarah. Adelaide was tall and athletic, while Sarah was more portly and an excellent cook. They made more frequent trips into town and requested to borrow Mr. Yates' slaves 
more often. The twins' globe-trotting charm, coupled with their worldwide fame and wealth, proved almost irresistible to the girls. However, their obstacles to love proved enormous. Interracial marriage was outright illegal. However, this twin status as rich people from Asia put them in a strange category where many considered them honorary whites. But once their father caught wind of the simultaneous romances, he was having none of it. Mr. Yates shuddered at the thought of marrying off his youngest daughters to two, quote, swarthy Chinese freaks, unquote. He would die before he would allow a permanent foursome in his family. The twins were respectful but persistent. They arranged a large quilting party at their house and invited every family of means in the entire county. Sarah and Adelaide attended with their father, who was unaware that the get-together was mainly for him. Mr. Yates gazed up at the beautiful flowing drapes, ornate furniture, fine plates coupled with ivory-handled silverware, elegant brass candle holders, flavored tobacco, expensive whiskey. As the luxurious party went on, Mr. Yates became more and more impressed, to the point that the band of cartilage that connected Chang and Aang might as well have disappeared. He and his daughters left the party very impressed. However, he still refused to give his blessing. Soon after, Chang and Aang offered to go to Philadelphia and order a doctor to separate them at once, despite the risks, if that's what it would take to marry them. The daughters pleaded against it and committed themselves to convincing their parents. Mrs. Yates was unable to attend the Siamese pair's party because, well, she was unable to leave her house. By all accounts, Mrs. Yates was the fattest person in the entire state of North Carolina. She had broken every scale she had ever been on, and her circumference was estimated to be well over nine feet. Mostly bedridden, her weight was estimated to be somewhere around 600 pounds. As the sisters pleaded for their father's blessing, he replied, Chang and Aang don't look like anyone else I ever saw. The sister shot back, neither does Mama, but that don't stop you from loving her. With the threat of elopement from the sisters, Mr. and Mrs. Yates reluctantly agreed to give their blessing to marry the Siamese twins. Many townsfolk were furious when they heard the news, but the joint marriage ceremony was held on the fine spring day of April 13, 1843. The family had to clean up some vandalism before the ceremony, but many of their friends, including Charles Harris, were in attendance. However, one complication arose when the officiant had all parties signed the paperwork. Chang and Aang had no last name. So on that day, they chose one. Bunker. Apparently, after a New York financial company that they had been doing business with for years, the Mr. Bunkers and Mrs. Bunkers retired to their marriage bed that evening. To say that their so-called sexual deviancy was frowned upon at the time would be the understatement of the century, and the century where the Siamese twins and their wives resided in was the Victorian era. One leading crusader against sexual promiscuity at the time was Dr. Sylvester Graham, who believed that one ounce of semen was equivalent to 40 ounces of blood and prescribed married couples to have sex no more than once a month, or else they would be subjected to all sorts of diseases and maladies. To combat sexual urges, he prescribed his trademarked Graham flour crackers, which you might recognize today from their use in s'mores. Needless to say, the tabloid newspapers were not kind to the pair of Bunker's marriages. The reports out of the remote area of North Carolina brought about accusations of moral failure and disgust at the bestial nature of the arrangement. Some simply refused to believe it. The Louisville Journal asked, quote, 
ought not the wives of the Siamese twins be indicted for marrying a quadruped? Unquote. A reporter for the Greensboro Patriot ended his acknowledgement of the disdainful fact of the marriage with, All comment is useless. Despite the horror at the thought, curiosity, as was so often the case with the conjoined twins, soon followed. Questions of how intercourse was attempted were asked far and wide. However, those details never left the two pairs' bedrooms, as neither the twins nor their wives ever discussed any conjugal details publicly. However, we do know that whatever transpired in the bedroom was effective. Despite the outcry over this freakish, godforsaken union, Sarah and Adelaide each gave birth to healthy daughters just a few days apart, ten months after their marriages. Within the next year, Aang and Sarah had another daughter, while Chang and Adelaide had their first son. As their family grew, they knew they would soon outgrow their house in Trap Hill. They decided to move to another spot just a few miles away, in a town called Mount Airy. It was on this land that the twins, two connected brothers formerly sold into indentured servitude, began farming using slave labor. However, there was no irony in the eyes of Chang and Aang. They had worked hard and considered themselves proper southern gentry, and considered the black slaves as something else. Within a few years, Chang and Aang had 18 slaves between them, working the farm or serving in the house. The pair were known to occasionally bet slaves on high-stakes card games. A plantation owner who had purchased slaves from the twins reported that the slaves he bought were, quote, some of the worst whipped Negroes I ever saw, unquote. Chang and Aang were indignant when faced with these accusations of cruelty, defending themselves by saying they treated their slaves fairly, and due to their wealth, their slaves had more amenities than many others in the county. Regardless of the bunker's treatment of their human property, they were active slave traders who bought and sold people early and often. Since 1843, the Siamese twins and their respective wives had been producing children at a rate of around one per year. As their brood grew, so too did tensions between their wives. Another house was built close by, and the family split. Obviously, Chang and Aang could not. So they invented a regiment of three days at one brother's place, and then three days at the other's. They kept to this strict schedule for the rest of their lives. By 1849, an old friend from their touring days offered $8,000 for a year of touring, all expenses paid. Several years of subpar crops, coupled with the building of a second house, rekindled the twins' wanderlust, and they accepted the offer. As scores of Americans headed west in search of gold, Chang and Aang headed to New York, seeking fortunes of their own. They each brought one of their five-year-old daughters to show that despite how abnormal their situation was, they could still produce normal offspring. The twins arrived in New York, stunned at the explosion of new entertainment that had sprung up since they had last been there. Carnivals, big-budget stage productions, marching bands, minstrel shows, zoos. But no one was more successful at making a fortune with all forms of entertainment than the now-legendary P.T. Barnum. With swagger and poise, the brash Connecticut Yankee had almost monopolized tomfoolery in the Big Apple. Barnum believed that deep down, the American people want to be fooled. And those that don't, well, as they say, there's a sucker born every minute. 
P.T. Barnum was a rare combination of trickster, showman, and salesman from an early age. And by this point, the man had a vast entertainment infrastructure without rival. His showrooms and circuses included ventriloquists, giants, dwarves, jugglers, fat men, skinny men, bearded women, hunchbacks, mummies, Native Americans, albinos, dioramas, panoramas, opera singers, mechanical automatons, dogs that could do math, and animals from across the world. The prized jewel of Barnum's collection was a 25-inch tall pygmy of a man called General Tom Thumb, who paraded around like a microscopic cigar-puffing Napoleon Bonaparte. The people loved it. They loved it all. Despite some major setbacks in the forms of raging fires and PR nightmares, P.T. Barnum could not be stopped. His dwarfs grew ever smaller, his giants ever taller. That's why when the Siamese twins arrived in New York, they could barely gain an audience versus Barnum's well-oiled machine. Within a few months, their amateur manager could barely afford their room and board. The twins and their daughters returned home with nothing besides an IOU note from the disgraced manager. But Barnum never took his eyes off the magnificent Siamese twins, who had always eluded his grasp. They had refused to be Barnumized, a word that Barnum proudly used to describe the process by which he would discover, prepare, control, and display oddities and curiosities, alive or dead, human or otherwise. Years later, right before the election of Abraham Lincoln, the twins finally accepted an offer by an associate of P.T. Barnum to go on display at his American museum in New York City. Chang and Ang were almost 50, their hair completely white. They brought two of their teenage children with them. The marriage of P.T. Barnum and the Siamese twins was one of convenience. Chang and Ang saw the showman as a greedy madman, and Barnum recognized that the twins were incredibly business-minded and drove a hard bargain, unlike most of his other curiosities, who mostly came from terrible situations. Barnum quickly claimed that he had discovered the Siamese twins, a lie that still holds sway among many to this day, and put them on display in a showroom in the American Museum. The conjoined men and their pair of sons were initially excited by the pomp and fanfare of being in the presence of so much cutting-edge entertainment, but the reality of their situation set in on the first day. There they were, the once world-famous Siamese twins with their teenage sons, all dressed in fine suits and sitting on a bench. To their left was an albino family, and to their right was an African with a tapered head called Zip the Pinhead, deemed by Barnum as the missing link between man and ape. The title of their exhibit was, What Is It? Chang and Aang, land-owning, slave-owning, southern gentry, found it hard to put up with the humiliation. After just a few weeks, the twins cut ties with P.T. Barnum. Adamant about showing their sons that there was more to being a curiosity than Barnum's sideshow treatment, Chang and Aang bought tickets to an untapped market, California. They boarded a Pacific Mail steamship in November of 1860. While on the open ocean, Chang and Aang told stories of their touring past to their teenage children, more than once gazing to the west, remembering their native Siam. They were about their son's age when they boarded a steamer not unlike the one they were currently on, whisked away into a new life. After about two weeks at sea, they arrived at the now bustling port of San Francisco. After the discovery of gold just over a decade ago, the port city had grown exceptionally fast. When Shang and Ang began arranging their shows, they were surprised to see that their reputation had preceded them. In addition to many having already heard of the twins, 
Minstrel shows had been utilizing their likeness as well. In California, blackface performers were often accompanied by actors in yellowface, who portrayed stereotypes of Asian Americans. One routine yellowface sketch involved two minstrel performers struggling with a yellow silk ribbon tied between them, a reference to the Siamese twins. But Chang and Ang's shows in California were a hit, and with their sold-out shows, they got a taste of their former glory. While they were in California, a letter arrived from the rest of the family back home. They mentioned an article that ran in the New York Tribune, which featured a political cartoon of two men representing the North and the South over the issue of slavery. Between them was a cartilage band labeled Unity. The title was The Political Siamese Twins. It turns out that while in California, they had missed out on an incredible amount of political turmoil. As the twins and their sons made their return voyage, seven states had left the Union. Their steamship passed Confederate-captured Fort Sumter the day before they landed in port. By the time they arrived back at Mount Airy, their home state of North Carolina had seceded from the Union, the last state to do so. Many papers ran articles using the Siamese twins as a metaphor for the coming conflict. Some claimed that one twin was pro-slavery while the other was not, which led to political cartoons portraying the twins arguing with each other, but unable to separate. Mount Airy, where the twins lived, wasn't pro-Union, but due to many neighbors' ties with people in the North, it was definitely anti-war. In the capital, President Lincoln called for a volunteer army to restore the Union and ordered a blockade of all Southern ports. As the days passed, the citizens of Mount Airy realized this wasn't something that was simply going to blow over. Like one of the political cartoons proclaimed, this civil war would sever the band that connected them, committing fratricide and suicide all at once. Soon the patriotic fervor hit Surrey County. Young boys waited in lines near the courthouse proclaiming that they would soon be whipping the Yanks with cornstalks, while another yelled that he would return home with Lincoln's ears. In the first two years of the conflict, North Carolina proved to be a minor arena in the war. At this time, Chang and Eng owned 725 acres and 30 slaves. Their store floundered as prices skyrocketed due to the Union blockade. The price of salt, vital for preserving meat and vegetables, rose by over 500%. However, the Siamese twins, always eager for the next business opportunity, invested thousands of dollars into the new Confederate currency. Despite being against the war, they were intent on making a profit, oftentimes on the backs of their slaves, which placed them squarely on the side of the Confederate States of America. Escaped Union soldiers from a local Confederate garrison brought the war closer to home as the escapees looted and pillaged in the countryside. Fear took hold in Mount Airy. On the other side of the world, the king of their native country chose a different side of the war than they did. In February of 1862, the King of Siam offered President Lincoln several dozen Asian elephants to be utilized in the war effort. Lincoln genuinely mulled over the offer, but declined due to, quote, our jurisdiction not reaching a latitude so low as to favor the multiplication of the elephant, unquote. While it's wild to imagine Union war elephants stomping around Civil War battlefields, another distant byproduct of Siam decided to join the war. In April of 1863, a week before his 18th birthday, Chang's eldest son, Christopher Wren Bunker, enlisted in the Confederate cavalry. 
While Christopher towered over his connected father and uncle and was capable with a rifle on horseback, his family was reluctant to let him go. But he was persistent, so after tearful goodbyes, Christopher was whisked off to the front. As the war continued, the entire Bunker family worried about him. A few months later, tragedy struck. Through the name on the saddle, Christopher's horse was returned to the Bunker's estate, still covered in blood. The families feared the worst. They knew Christopher had been killed. Soon, Union soldiers made their way into Mount Airy. One Union soldier even tried to grab one of the Bunker's daughters, but she slapped him hard enough that he backed off. That would be the only casualty the Union forces suffered in Mount Airy. But good news soon arrived at the Bunker doorstep. Chang's son Christopher had returned. When the war officially ended, Christopher had been released and sent home. He had been shot off his horse, but was captured while injured. A northern doctor removed the bullets and he was sent to a POW camp. He returned to Mount Airy, a hero. With him, he carried a war souvenir, the bullet taken from his shoulder by the Union doctor. Reconstruction ravaged the Bunker Twins' wealth, most of which was stored in slaves or products of slave labor. With Union soldiers stationed in Mount Airy, all of their 30 slaves were free to go. A few stayed behind and were added to the payroll. In addition, thousands of dollars invested into Confederate currency was now almost completely worthless. If they were going to be able to keep their houses and feed their families, Chang and Aang would have to put to use the one valuable resource they still had, the cartilage band that connected them. They reluctantly reached out to their old friend P.T. Barnum. The aging pair of Siamese twins might not even have been enough to make Barnum's insane roster of oddities, but as chance had it, the famous showman had run into a bit of bad luck. Just months before, Barnum's famous American museum had burned to the ground. Hundreds of animals had burned alive, including two beluga whales boiled in their tanks. Those that did escape the inferno fled the scene, creating pandemonium in lower Manhattan. Charred pythons slithered into apartment buildings. Police shot flaming monkeys fleeing the scene. A fireman hacked a tiger to death with his axe before carrying out the fat lady who had been on display. The American Museum had been the most popular attraction in New York, and its destruction lost Barnum millions. Narrowly avoiding financial ruin, Barnum could use every penny he could get. They quickly arranged a meeting. Eng's oldest daughter, Kate, had been feeling ill for quite some time, and her father and uncle were deeply worried about her. With stateside doctors unable to pinpoint her ailment, the twins hoped to meet with a specialist in England. They struck a deal with Barnum to arrange a British tour. The Siamese twins were paired up with 7'5 Nova Scotian giantess Anna Swan, who would accompany them on their trip. The Siamese twins, their sick daughter Kate, their healthy daughter Nanny, and the enormous Miss Swan all boarded the steamship Iowa for their Atlantic voyage. During their tour, the conjoined twins and the giantess attracted moderate crowds, but the twins' appeal had lost a bit of its luster. What used to be unbridled fascination and curiosity was replaced by, oh, I've heard of them, or, huh, that's neat. Such is the nature of all freak shows. You get while the getting is good. What once generated pandemonium now garnered only mild interest, often not enough interest to pay the entrance fee. Eventually, Chang and Eng arrived at a specialist office in Edinburgh, the true reason for their trip. Several doctors looked over Eng's daughter Kate and gave their grim diagnosis, consumption, better known today as tuberculosis. 
The cure, penicillin, would not be discovered for another 60 years. The doctors gave her only months to live. The Bunker family was devastated. To pay for the examination, Chang and Ang allowed the medical students to examine their connecting band of cartilage. The presiding doctor wrote in his journal, quote, Dressed as they are in the ordinary American fashion, with their hair cut shorts and talking English with the Southern American accent, they retain little or nothing of their appearance of Eastern subjects, save for their features. Unquote. Like their dwindling audiences, even the doctors had run out of things to say about the twins. The troop returned home and the bunkers made their way back to Mount Airy, bringing only bad news about Kate and only a moderate sum of money. Over the next few years, Chang and Aang settled into their twilight years, still keeping to their strict three-day schedule between each of their houses. Their sons and daughters were now going off to college or getting married. They would mill around the general store and frequently visit with their neighbors. For the most part, everything was taken care of. But the reconstruction economy would not allow them to provide an education for all their combined 21 children. For that, they would need to go on one last tour. They struggled to arrange an American exhibition, so they settled upon a massive circus in the new unified country of Germany. Chang and Aang had taken pride in the fact that in all of their years of exhibiting themselves to the public, that they had never once been part of a circus, the bottom rung of the freak show business. But the pay was good, and they had yet to travel to continental Europe, so they accepted. Every night for three weeks, the world-famous Siamese twins would be introduced by the fast-talking German master of ceremonies, and Chang and Eng, each pushing 60, would hobble out onto the stage in the massive tent. Both of them were nearly deaf, but they could see it. What was once disgust and curiosity that had turned to boredom and indifference had now turned to ridicule. The audience laughed and laughed and laughed. One American writer in the crowd wrote, quote, The two aging men trotted out onto the podium, cavorted and bowed, and instead of being greeted by applause, were met with laughter. The two seam-faced 60-year-old men, stiffly, awkwardly moving about, seemed ridiculous in this carnival atmosphere. It was pathetic that they had to perform in this undignified manner in this place. What might have been charming and amusing when they were younger now appeared infinitely sad. Unquote. The connected aging men from Siam kept their chins up, looking upon the masses of unrelenting ridicule. The twins were forced to return to Mount Airy, hoping the money they made from the degrading German circus would be enough to provide for their families. On their way back across the Atlantic, Chang and Aang found themselves in the presence of Edward James Roy, the newly elected president of Liberia. Roy had climbed from the son of a fugitive slave to a famous barber to the president-elect of a nation of freed slaves, returning to West Africa. He humbly invited the Siamese twins to play a game of chess with him, a game he knew they were fond of. Roy was returning to the States to secure a loan for a system of railroads in the fledgling country. The strange nature of their chess match was not lost on Chang, Eng, or Edward Roy. As black and white chess pieces made their way across the board, tensions rose. Roy, a symbol of emancipation, battled the famous twins from Siam, whose own freed slaves might very well have been making their way to Liberia as they played. Sometime during the game, the president-elect Roy asked Chang and Eng about their old slaves. 
Aang rose in defiance, but Chang wasn't fast enough to keep up. The band between them perilously stretched until both cried out in pain. They called the game a draw and headed for their quarters, where they remained bedridden for the rest of their voyage. They returned to Mount Airy in late 1870. Towards the end of their lives, the twins would allow their vices to get the best of them. Chang had become more and more fond of the bottle, and by their 50s was a textbook alcoholic. Aang, on the other hand, avoided booze. His vice of choice was gambling, specifically card games. On riverboat casinos or in gambling dens, Aang would pound the felt as Chang would pound the drinks. By 1870, their health began to decline further. On a cold night in 1874, Chang Bunker fell ill. That night, they were to switch homes according to their strict three-day rotation schedule. Eng suggested that perhaps they should break the rule for once and stay put in Chang's house, but Chang insisted they keep to the schedule. They rode in the open-air carriage to Eng's house. Chang huddled against his brother for warmth. When they got to the house, Eng supported Chang's weight and essentially hauled him up the steps. They stoked the fire and went to bed. As dawn broke, one of Aang's sons went to check on their father and uncle. Upon seeing Chang's ashen face, he knew. Wide-eyed, he awoke his father and said, Uncle Chang is dead. Aang solemnly looked over and said, Then I am going too. The next hour was pandemonium, as the family frantically tried to figure out what to do. Someone was sent to fetch the doctor, who had previously made known his plan to perform an emergency separation should one of the twins fall dead. Unfortunately, the doctor was currently away on business, but the doctor's brother rushed towards the bunker estate with a heavy bundle of surgical tools. Meanwhile, Aang was languishing in agony. For the first time in Aang's entire life, he was alone. Tears streamed down his face, nearly hyperventilating, as he struggled with his cartilage band that now connected him to a corpse. The room was completely filled with the entire Bunker clan, all mourning Chang and trying to comfort Aang. The color slowly drained from Aang's face. He looked across all the faces in the crowded room before saying, May the Lord have mercy upon my soul, before the life left his eyes. Over the next few days, the Bunkers received a cavalcade of support from the rest of the Mount Airy community. News of the Siamese twins' passing spread quickly. The New York Herald ran a full front-page story emblazoned with the headline, The Dead Siamese Twins, a ligature that joined them in life and in death. Chang and Aang were momentarily interred in a double-wide casket in a shallow grave in the family burial plot. Within two days, people from out of town came to ask about the bodies. Anyone from circus managers to scientists came to see if they could obtain the connected corpses. Family and community members held them at bay from the pair of grieving widows as long as they could, but offers kept flooding in. For days, the large family debated on what to do. Many family members wanted a simple Christian burial to avoid selling their father and uncle to a freak show chomping at the bit to display their corpses. However, they knew that the graves would never be safe from grave robbers. And now, the entrepreneurs outside were yelling, Name your price! After much debate, the widows decided to sell the bodies to a pair of Philadelphia doctors with the promise that they would not put the bodies on display. They agreed. Chang and Aang's bodies were taken to Philadelphia, where they underwent an extensive autopsy. The cartilage band that connected Chang and Aang contained liver tissue that connected both of their liver organs. 
extensive blood vessels were found throughout. As far as the cause of death, Chang died from a cerebral blood clot, and the leading theory is that Aang died when his blood flowed into his twin brother's body, where Chang's no longer beating heart sent no blood in return. Another horrifying theory is that Aang simply died of fright. Further investigation revealed that a separation of the twins would have proved fatal. Years later, against the wills of their wives, the band that connected Chang and Aang was put on display at the Mütter Medical Museum in Philadelphia. Although Mount Airy is now considered by most as Mayberry, USA, the Andy Griffith Museum there has a section of the museum devoted to the Bunker Twins. Surrey County attracts thousands of Andy Griffith Show fans every year, and many of them are surprised to find out that the little town meant to represent a nostalgic America of yesteryear was once home to one of the most exotic curiosities the country had ever seen. Their exhibit, tucked away behind an iconic television program devoted to American nostalgia, perhaps represents what is so often the case, the normal covering up the abnormal. The Bunker family is still around. The descendants of Chang and Ang's 21 children today number well over 1,500 people. Anyone with slight Asian features in the area are often called Bunkery, and can be recognized as one of the many descendants of the Siamese twins. The Bunker ancestors include an Air Force Major General, a renowned archaeologist, a Democratic nominee for Governor of Florida, an owner of the Union Pacific Railroad, and a Pulitzer Prize-winning composer. An enormous Bunker family reunion happens in Mount Airy every year at a Baptist church that Chang and Ang themselves helped build all those years ago. They gather to eat food catered by the local Thai restaurant and watch slideshows of the incredible history of their family. Thailand's ambassador to the United States has been known to stop by. Even descendants of some of the Bunker's slaves are often in attendance confronting the complex history that surrounds the twins' strange, oppressed, oppressor dichotomy. Up until just a few years ago, Chang and Aang were the longest-lived conjoined twins in recorded history. The Siamese twins' moniker spread far and wide, eventually being used to refer to any pair of conjoined twins. The term is so widespread that Chang and Aang have now become known as the original Siamese twins. Since stepping foot in Boston in 1829, Chang and Ang Bunker took the world by storm. The pair witnessed some of the biggest events of the 19th century, with first-hand accounts of the East India Company, indentured servitude, the American frontier, soot-stained Victorian England, the Second Great Awakening, P.T. Barnum's entertainment empire, slavery, the Civil War, Reconstruction, the unification of Germany, the gold rush. Chang and Ang arguably saw and interacted with more people than anyone else in the world at that time. Pearl-clutching mothers, gawking Yankee peddlers, poor southern farmers, downtrodden slaves, dirty gold miners, wide-eyed children, English royalty, greedy showmen, prying doctors, fellow freaks. From a small fishing village to a southern plantation on the other side of the world, with countless tents, showrooms, and freak shows in between. They experienced all of this, side by side, inseparable to the very end. Historian was written and produced by me, Jake Barton. Our story editor is Thomas Harlander. 
Critical to my research was a book called Inseparable by Yunte Huang. It's an incredible book that really gives historical context to so much of what the twins saw and interacted with. And if you haven't already over the course of this pretty huge episode, I strongly recommend looking up Chang and Ang on Google to see what they look like uh, over the course of their lives. It's fascinating to see how they aged and changed in America. Some facts that didn't make the episode, the 1790 Naturalization Act limited the privilege of natural citizens to only free white persons. That would not be officially repealed until 1952. Here's another one I found when I was uh, researching just conjoined twins in general. In 1533, a pair of conjoined twins died just a few days after birth but their mere existence radically affected the local Catholic priest. This was in Cuba or somewhere in the Caribbean. Like, he got obsessed. For weeks, he toiled over the question of whether they had one or two souls. After an autopsy and much, pardon my pun, soul-searching, he deemed them to have two separate souls. You can follow Historium on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you like this story, give it a rating wherever you listen and share the episode with a friend. If you want more episodes, go to patreon.com slash historium. For five bucks a month, you can get access to my entire back catalog of bonus episodes. I'll leave you today with the sound of another roundabout export of Siam, my Siamese cat, Cal. <laughs>